The Old Testament reading comes from Jonah, chapters 1, verses 1 through 3. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish for, from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found the ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Word of the Lord. One Ancient Hope, it's good to be with you this morning, especially as we start uh, this new series, this series on the book of, of Jonah, and we'll, we'll be going through that for um, a good chunk of this, of this spring semester. And so before we, we turn to the beginning of this book, let us together turn to the Lord in prayer. God, our Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for all that you've given to us. We thank you for the gift of your word. We thank you for this narrative of Jonah, especially, Lord. I pray that through these next weeks, you would help us to understand more fully who you are and what you've done for us in your Son, Christ Jesus, as we study this book together. It's in Christ's name that we pray, and, and we do so in, in the power and the efficacy of your Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, like I said, so, so today we're, we're going to start a new series on the book of, of Jonah. And as you probably know, Jonah is, is really the most unlikely of, of prophets. And as we go through the book, we'll see more and more why that's the case. But it's for this reason. It's, it's because Jonah is such an unlikely prophet that the book of Jonah is, is so uniquely surprising and so uniquely insightful. And today we're, we're going to be looking at the beginning of Jonah, and, and this is going to be very important for everything that follows because this is going to set the course for the rest of the book. And so to begin with, I want us to look at today's passage under three headings. We have the, the evil of Nineveh, we have the fear of Jonah, and we have the word of the Lord. And so let's look at each of those in turn, starting with the evil of Nineveh. At, at first, we should point out here that the book of Nineveh, it, it takes place probably around the mid-700s B.C., and, and Jonah begins in the northern kingdom of, of Israel, and this would be in distinction from the southern kingdom of Judah. And we're not told here exactly what it is that Nineveh has done but the historical record of Nineveh is pretty bad. Nineveh was, was a city in the Assyrian Empire, and this empire was known for some of the most brutal actions in the historical record of the ancient Near East. For instance, one Assyrian king, he says this about his tactics in one of his conquests. He says, I built a pillar over against the gate, and I flayed all the chief men. And I covered the pillar with their skins. Some I impaled upon the pillar on stakes. Many captives I burned with fire. From some I cut off their hands and their fingers. And from others I cut off their noses, their ears. And of many I put out the eyes. I mean, this is atrocious. This is horrible. This is really, really, really bad. This is incredible, horrible brutality, and it's aimed at conquering and controlling other lands and peoples. 
And what's happening here is God is, is holding them accountable. He's calling them to account for their actions. God calls Jonah to publicly condemn this evil to Nineveh. And in the Assyrian context, this would have been very, very surprising. Nineveh was an important city in the worship of the Assyrian gods. We, we find actually that in the center of Nineveh, there was a great temple, uh, a ziggurat. But what's happening here at the beginning of Jonah? God is giving no attention to the Assyrian gods. He, the one and true living God, and, and not the false gods and the demons of Assyrian worship, he is calling Nineveh to account for their evil. And this would shock the Assyrians. For them, gods were associated with particular things and particular places and particular peoples. There can be no one God of everything and everywhere. Sure, the God of Israel, he might call the people of Israel to account, but he has no authority over Assyria or over the Assyrian people. And yet, God declares to them, whether they realize it or not, that he is the God that they are accountable to. And God also calls all of us to account. And perhaps when you hear this, you think, well, that's fine because what I'm doing is nothing close to the brutality of the Assyrians. But we shouldn't move too quickly here because we might actually have more in common with the Assyrians than we think. And to see how this is so, we, we have to look more closely at the notion of evil. Again, it is the evil of Nineveh that has come before the Lord. And so what is evil? Well, if we're going to have something that we can clearly identify as evil, then evil has to be a deviation, a, a departure, an affront, an attack on the order, the good order of the world. Only if there is real good in a truly good order can there be actual evil. For instance, we, we all know an unhealthy tree because we know what a healthy tree looks like. We know when a tree is not good because we know how a tree should flourish. The shriveled leaves of the tree tell us that something is wrong. And we know that because we have seen full and vibrant leaves. And so we recognize the shriveled leaves as a departure from the good order of things. The Assyrians knew this. They held to an order of the world, and evil was a departure from this good order and an attack upon it. It was the gods, their gods, who established the world in the way that it worked. A tree must submit itself to this order in order to flourish, and so too must the human. But clearly, based on their actions, they did not see the human order like the Israelites did. For the Assyrians, the god at the top of their hierarchy was the god Asser. And in worship of this god, the Assyrian king and the Assyrian empire, they were meant to subjugate as many people as they could in absolutely any way that they could. They believed that this brutality was good because it was in line with what their highest god commanded. They believed they were following the order of the world, an order established by their brutal gods. Notice then, God is showing his greatness and his sovereignty here 
by saying that the, the, the teachings of the Assyrian gods, they're not good, but they're actually evil. All the same, all the same, take note here, the Assyrians, they still had a basis for calling things good and evil. They believed there was an order to the world. It was an order of kill or be killed. It was an order of the strong conquering and humiliating the weak. It was a brutal order, yes, but it was an order nonetheless. To be in line with this order was good, and whatever departed from it was bad. And here's the thing. This order should not sound all that strange to us. There is a latitude here for how Christians understand biological processes, and I'm happy to talk with you about the positions endorsed by the PCA, our denominations, and the study report they issued on these issues. However, we are often told that the reason we are here, the reason that anything now alive exists, is because of a process of our ancestors getting the best of weaker species. We are here, we exist, by a very long process of Assyrian conquest over any and all competitors. However, if the only reason that we are here is by the process of survival of the fittest, then the true order of the world just is the Assyrian order. And so, when the survival of the fittest was first put forward as the explanation of life on earth, we should not be surprised that thinkers also put it forward as the basis for human ethics. Again, if good and evil is a matter of conforming to or departing from the order of the world, the order out there, how could it not be the basis of human ethics? Consider an example offered by scholar and journalist Tara Isabella Burton in her new book, Self Made, which is a kind of intellectual history of the modern understanding of the self. At one point, she, she speaks of the work of, of Herbert Spencer, the person who actually coined the saying survival of the fittest. And Spencer, in simply following the order of nature as he came to understand it, he developed a concept of ethics known as social Darwinism. And since the ethical order of human life should reflect the actual order of the world, then yes, the poor and the weak and the ill would in time go extinct, making space for better, stronger people. The same thing that happened to weaker animals should happen to weaker humans. This is how humanity progresses and becomes better and better and better. Spencer writes this, the whole effort of nature was to get rid of the poor, to clear the world of them and make room for the better. He lays out the core of his ethics like this. If people are sufficiently complete to live, it is well they should live. If they are not sufficiently complete to live, they die. And it is best that they should die. And this might sound brutal to all of us, just as brutal as the behavior of the Assyrians. But if this is the actual order of the world, if the strong eating and conquering the weak is the whole reason we're here, then of course, this is absolutely how we should live. And you might object to this order, but what is it that you're going to appeal to? You might disagree with Spencer, but, but at least Spencer has a real basis for his ethics. 
You can, of course, appeal to God, and, and that's a good idea. I would recommend that. But if you reject God, the only order out there is a brutal one. You might argue for an ethic that calls us to care and serve those in need, but that actually goes against the order that God is here. And so by the order of the world, your ethic of love and service is actually evil. It, it, it departs from the actual order of things. And if you still insist on an ethic that calls us to love and serve those in need, you can't appeal to anything out here, nothing out there. Out there is just the Assyrian brutality of survival of the fittest. All you have is your personal opinion. You might tell someone that they should pay their workers a fair wage. You might tell someone that they should tell the truth, even if it is costly to them. You might tell someone that no child should go without the food and clothing that he or she needs. But really, all you're doing is just giving your opinion. And other people might have different opinions. If there's nothing out there, then it's just a matter of your opinion against mine, and so agree to disagree. And if someone responds to each of these opinions, like Spencer does, if they say, well, if people are not sufficiently complete to live, it's best they die, at least that person can actually base their ethics in reality. Here's the thing. Only if there's an order out there that we can appeal to can we have any actual foundation for our ethics? And without God, the only order that we can find out there is the Assyrian order of the strong eating the weak. And so, yes, we might think that we're in a different place than the Assyrians, but we're really not. And so we have three options here. We take the ethics of Spencer and the Assyrians and appeal to the order of the survival of the fittest. Two, we affirm an ethic that has no real or actual basis in reality and, and make ethics only a matter of opinion, my truth versus your truth, my opinion versus your opinion, which means that we can't actually call the Assyrians or anyone to account. Or three, we appeal to God, the good and gracious God who established a good and gracious order and who calls us to a good and gracious ethic. And if we choose the third option, the God option, we must also realize that our own personal evil, the evil that we have done, has also come before the presence of God. And this is a frightening prospect. And this realization brings us to our second point, the fear of Jonah. The whole premise of God's calling of Jonah to go to Nineveh rests upon the truth that God is the God of all peoples and places. This truth, this truth is also the source of a great irony that runs throughout the book of Jonah. Jonah attempts to flee the God of all the earth by going to another part of the earth. God calls Jonah from the northern kingdom of Israel east to Nineveh, but Jonah doesn't want to go. Instead, Jonah tries to run as far west as he can to the most western place of the known world. He tries to flee to Tarshish, which is probably in modern-day Spain. Also, it's important to note that this is not the only book in Scripture where we hear about Jonah. He's also mentioned in 1 Kings 14. We read that Jonah served as a prophet during the reign of King Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. 
And we read here that Jonah gave a prophecy about reclaiming and restoring the border of Israel. And in that case, Jonah was speaking a prophecy that he liked. He was working to extend the land of his own people. However, it seems that Jonah has come to think of the one true God as if he is a false pagan god. God is the god of this land, this land that has just been extended. But he's not god of other lands and peoples. He's not god of the Ninevites, and he certainly isn't the god of the land of Tarshish. And so Jonah here acts like a pagan. He thinks that he can flee from the presence of God by going somewhere else. His actions indicate that he thinks God is present and active and powerful in some places, but not in others. Jonah has shown himself not to be all that different than the wayward Assyrians. However, God creates and he upholds, and so God is present to every atom in the universe, right? Whether that atom is in Israel or Nineveh or Tarshish or somewhere in the raging sea, God's presence cannot be escaped. And since this all-present and all-powerful God is also the good God, he calls all of us to account for our evil. This is scary, As God does with the Ninevites, he also holds all of us responsible for the ways that we go against his good and gracious order. But God also calls us to do things that we don't necessarily want to do, just like he does with Jonah. Jonah was happy to prophesy about reclaiming his country's territorial land and border. Jonah wasn't so excited about going to Nineveh. And throughout this series, we'll explore the the different motivations that Jonah has for fleeing from God, but at least one of his motivations is fear. He fears the Assyrian Empire, and he does so for good reasons. In fact, this empire will eventually conquer the northern kingdom of Israel, Jonah's own nation, in around 721 BC. The Assyrians are a brutal and powerful empire, and God has called Jonah to Nineveh, one of their religious sinners, to tell the people that the one true living God is holding them accountable for the evil that they have done. This is a dangerous and potentially deadly mission. God has called Jonah to do a very scary thing. But notice something else here. Jonah refuses to do a scary thing with God And instead, he does a scary thing without God. Rather than going to Nineveh in obedience to God, Jonah runs away from God by way of the sea. And this is a very surprising action for a Hebrew like Jonah. His people had little interaction with the sea, and generally they were fearful of it. They they didn't want to do anything with it. As one commentator writes, The Hebrews were landsmen with little experience of the sea. That Jonah was prepared to entrust himself to an ocean-going boat rather than face up to God's call must have struck the hearers as proof positive of his mad determination. Again, Jonah refuses to do a scary thing with God, and instead he chooses to do a scary thing without God. This is the very same choice that all of us have. 
Yes, it is scary to face a God who holds us accountable for our evil. And yes, if God is our creator and our sustainer, if he holds every bit of us together, both our body and our soul, then yes, he made us. And yes, he creates us, sustains us, upholds us. And yes, he is infinitely wiser than us. He's God. And that means that God will call us to do things we don't want to do. But he does this because he knows what's best for us and what's best for the people around us. God calls Jonah to do a wise and good thing in going to Nineveh. But this is a very scary thing. God will call us to do scary things too. And these are ultimately things that are for our good, for our joy, for our flourishing, for our being conformed into the image of Christ. But if we refuse, then we, like Jonah, will just have to face other scary things and we'll have to do it alone. It probably won't be the sea, but it will be something just as, if not more, scary. This means, for instance, that God calls us to the hard and scary work of relationships. This means love and service. This means sticking around and working through difficulties when things get rough and things get hard. On social media, we can just turn off the phone or the computer. Not so in real life. You cannot run away, or at least you should not run away. And after years of hard work, you have a strong and loving community that has walked through the highs and lows of life together. God calls us to this, like he called Jonah to Nineveh. However, as scary as this might be, the alternative is much, much, much scarier. There was an article in the New York Times I read recently, and it was about an older man who needs a colonoscopy and in skin surgery for two cancerous spots. But he cannot undergo the procedures because he has no one to put down as the person who will escort him out of the hospital building, take him back to his apartment, and make sure that he is well settled there. These are all things that the hospital will not let an Uber driver do. The article says this, He is divorced and lives alone, like a growing number of older Americans. His daughter lives in Boston. The cousin who brought him home after cataract surgery a few years ago has moved away. He doesn't have friends to help. Phone calls to Aetna, his Medicare Advantage insurer, revealed that Medicare doesn't cover a medical escort. He struck out with home care agencies, too. He even offered maintenance workers in his building $100 to pick pick him up after their shifts. He said, they lost interest when I couldn't be specific about what time they had to be there. And friends, I don't know everything that's happened here, but clearly family and community have not been pursued rightly here by many people in this circumstance and situation. Yes, it is scary to do the hard work of cultivating relationships and friendships over a lifetime, but it is much scarier to be in this situation. We can do scary things with God, or we can face scarier consequences without God. And again, I don't mean to read too much into this, but we can at least say this of the situation. There is divorce. There is a parent-child relationship that clearly does not have a strong sense of familial duty or service. There are no deep friendships of actual care and sacrifice. There is isolation. And all of these are easy choices. 
Marriage, parenting, family, and deep friendships, they place scary responsibilities upon us. And it's the easiest thing in the world to run away from these scary things, just like Jonah did from Nineveh. And you will hear thousands of voices in the media, in books, in podcasts, in movies, that'll tell you to do just that. Your life is yours. Do what you want. If that relationship isn't meeting your immediate needs, let it go. But like Jonah, we'll be running from a good thing. And we will be running into an even scarier thing, and we will be doing so without God. Ask yourself, who could you ask to escort you from the hospital if you needed help? And I I do hope that this list is long, but if not, let us know. Reach out. Participate right here in this community. Let us know you and let us serve you. And there is also... There are also scary things that no one, none of us can escape. You will face sorrow and sickness and death. Consider a hard truth. If you don't die unexpectedly and suddenly, and if Christ does not return in your lifetime, you will spend hours, maybe days, maybe months, maybe even years, face to face with the reality that you will soon die. Have you really wrestled with that? Have you, have you ever tried to put yourself in the headspace of, of what it will be like to know that this week will be the last week of my present life, life as I now know it? This is not a bad exercise. Human death is not a good thing. It's a corruption and it's a consequence of sin and it should be lamented. And this is all true despite the fact that the Christian knows that death will ultimately lead to fuller life and and, and ultimately resurrection. But we will die. We cannot run from it. And you will ultimately face it with God in hope or you will face it without God in hopelessness. For all of us, this will be our final act of either running to God or running from God. You may run run from God because he calls us to do scary things. He calls us to love others in difficult ways. He calls us to disadvantage ourselves for the sake of others. He calls us to share his good message with others regardless of how it will be received. He calls us to stand strong in his teaching no matter what the larger culture thinks. He calls us to use our finances with a generosity that doesn't make sense to others. These are very good things. These are scary things. Remember, though, you cannot escape scary things. And the scariest things of all, things like isolation, dying without hope, dying alone, a lack of community and friendship, these most terrifying things, they come from rejecting the good and hard things that God calls us to. We are all called to face the scary prospect of Nineveh with God rather than to flee to the raging seas without God. Again, these are our only two options. But know this, know this. In calling us to do hard things, our good and wise and powerful God is not asking us to do anything that he has not already done himself and to a much greater degree. And this brings us to our third and final point, the word of the Lord. 
In the first point, we, we talked about the ethics of, of Nineveh. Again, we were, we were certain that we've moved past the ethics of Nineveh, and yet we, we, we have no actual foundation in reality to say this. And so consider the work of historian Tom Holland. In his book, Dominion, Holland traces the history of, of Christianity's influence and its effect on the Western world. I should also note that this is not the Spider-Man, Tom Holland. Um, but if it does make the sermon more interesting to think so, I, I give you the right to, to have that image in mind. Um, Holland, interestingly, he's not a Christian. He's actually a scholar of, of ancient civilizations. Not that those two things can't go together. But he's a scholar of ancient civilizations. And, and as he did his work, he found something disturbing. And it was something that he didn't at first want to admit. In studying the thinkers and heroes and cultures of the ancient world, Holland found himself in a very different world from his own. He read, for instance, the celebratory account of of Julius Caesar killing a million Gauls and making another million into slaves. And there was a relish in this brutality that, that, that spoke of a very alien ethic from what he was used to. And in thinking on this experience, Holland writes this, It was not just the extremes of callousness that unsettled me, but the complete lack of any sense that the poor or the weak might have the slightest intrinsic value. Why did I find this disturbing? Because in my ethics, I was not a Spartan or a Roman at all. That my belief in God had faded over the course of my teenage years did not mean that I had ceased to be Christian. Holland realizes that even though in his youth he turned away from Christianity, he realized his ethics were a uniquely Christian gift to the world. And only by looking at cultures that were wholly unaffected by Christianity, those like the culture of Assyria, did this become clear. However, Holland points out that we have become so completely Christianized in our ethic that we don't even realize it. We simply take for granted this ethic, and we don't realize how strange and peculiar it actually is. We are not the cultural norm. The Assyrians are. Holland writes, So profound has the impact of Christianity on the development of Western civilization been that it has come to be hidden from view. It is the incomplete revolutions which are remembered. The fate of those which triumph is to be taken for granted. And how is it that this revolution began? In the most surprising of ways and in the most offensive of ways with respect to this ethic of brutality. And this brings us back to the opening of Jonah. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah. And this is the standard way that a prophet is called in Scripture, even if Jonah himself is, 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 is far from the standard prophet. And we see here that it's not just in the New Testament, but also in the Old Testament, that the word of the Lord, the word of the Lord is seen as a a divine agent, as a divine actor. The word, the word of the Lord spoke through the prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and even through Jonah. But then, more than 700 years after the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the word of the Lord came to all of us. 
The word did not just speak through the prophets, but he became a prophet. He became the perfect prophet. He became the perfect human. The word of God, the son of God who is God, he became one of us. As the book of Hebrews says, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things through whom he also created the world. The word of the Lord, the word through which all of creation and all humans, every human, the word through which all of this was made, he became a human. Jonah is called to proclaim a message that will ultimately be a message of repentance and reconciliation. However, Jesus Christ, the word made flesh, is that very proclamation. He is both messenger and message, both prophet and prophecy. Like Jonah, he is called to a people of brutality, all of us. But unlike Jonah, he will go without delay. And unlike Jonah, he will suffer brutality. He will be killed through a horrible form of torture and execution. Holland, Holland warns us that the cross has become such a familiar and common symbol of Christianity that we actually forget just how offensive it is. Holland notes that even the Romans, in their brutality, they refused to take responsibility for inventing the practice of crucifixion. It was, it was too horrid and barbarous to claim. They assumed that some other more savage people had invented it. And by necessity, the Romans, while well, they were just following the course, the necessary course, because crucifixion was so powerful, so effective in frightening and keeping down the poor and the slaves, those who were the most common victims of crucifixion. Crucifixion was a cruel and effective way to maintain the Roman status quo. Even more, the Romans' ideas of the gods were the very same as those of the Assyrians. Holland writes this of the Romans. The measure of divinity was the power to torture one's enemies, not to suffer it oneself, to nail them to the rocks of a mountain or bind and crucify them after conquering the world. That a man who had himself been crucified might be hailed as a god could not help but be seen by people everywhere across the Roman world as scandalous, obscene, and grotesque. If we have come to think of God in any other way, it is because of this God who became human and underwent the torturous death of crucifixion for us. And if you don't think this is true, I invite you to read the stories of the pagan gods in classical mythology, for instance. They are anything but the picture of love and justice or service and sacrifice. And so, why did God do this? Well, he did this because of the evil of Nineveh. He did this because of the evil of Jonah. He did this because of the evil of each of us. He did this because he holds us all accountable and we are guilty before him. And yet, he is a God of reconciliation. This is why Jonah was sent. This is why Nineveh could repent and be reconciled to God rather than simply being destroyed by divine judgment. This is why Christ was sent. This is why Christ was crucified. Christ came and he lived perfectly. The astounding, loving, and completely non-brutal ethic that now we all just take for granted. Christ poured himself out at every instance in love for his neighbor. He truly loved his neighbor as himself. 
And he loved God with all of his human heart, mind, soul, and strength. Christ gave his life for us. Christ took upon himself the death that we deserve for our each and every evil that has come before the Lord. And so Christ invites us, like the people of Nineveh, to repent of our evil and turn to him. We are called to place our faith in Christ. And when we do, we find that Christ has taken the punishment of our evil upon himself, upon the cruel and horrid and barbarous beams of the cross. This is compelling. This truth objectively has changed the world. That's what Holman's book is all about. This truth has completely changed our idea of God. If you think of God as a loving God, it is because of Jesus Christ, whether or not you realize it. We have all been affected deeply by this beautiful ethic of sacrifice that we see in Christ. And apart from Christ, we are all Assyrians. And so, yes, Christ calls us to scary things, just like he did with Jonah. But this is the God who came to us and suffered for us to reconcile us to himself. And if this is true, we know that God will be with us in all things. The same God who upholds and sustains our every atom is the God who is with us in Christ Jesus. What else can we do then but to follow wherever our good God graciously leads? And when the world looks at the church, if this ethic of love and truth and justice and service is not what they see, then we are treating the Lord himself like one of the false and brutal gods of Assyria. Let us pray. God, our Father, we thank you for who you are. We praise you that you are the God of every person, of everywhere, of everything, and that you are the God of love. You are the God who holds us accountable for the evil that we have done, and yet you are the God who makes reconciliation for us and with us in Christ Jesus. May we rest in that truth more, and may we move out in joy and love and confidence as we perform, as we seek to do the things that you have called us to do, always and only in gratitude for Christ Jesus. Amen.